0: Episode 224, Underestimate Employers at Your Peril. Today, I speak with Suzanne Delbenco, Executive Director at Catalyst for Payment Reform.
1: American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value.
0: Those who say it cannot be done are usually interrupted by others doing it. That's a James Baldwin quote to keep in mind while considering employers ginning up real change in the healthcare industry. Generally speaking, employers who still do not believe they could have an impact helping their employees get better health care at lower prices, those kinds of employers don't listen to this podcast. But if they did, I'd suggest this James Baldwin quote is apropos. It's probably also apropos for providers, carriers, pharma, anyone who isn't paying a whole lot of attention to the success of organizations like Catalyst for Payment Reform. Americans, meaning employees, can no longer afford their health care. Deductibles are basically higher than savings, effectively meaning that employees have health plans they can't even afford to use. And those health plans cost as much as, like, a mid-sized sedan, a new one, every single year. Furthermore, we have employer healthcare spend chewing up raises. Employers and their CFOs are increasingly in a position where they have to act. It is no longer an option. Today, I speak with Suzanne Delbanco, Executive Director at Catalyst for Payment Reform. In one of her past lives, Suzanne was the founding CEO of the LeapFrog Group. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. By the way, if you click through to the show notes, you will find a link to a curriculum of podcasts to get you up to speed on what's happening in the employer space. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Suzanne. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I got to tell you, when we first started talking, I did not realize that LeapFrog was originally an employer initiative. And since you were actually the founding CEO of LeapFrog, my friend, as a prelude to the conversation that we're going to have, do you want to take a moment to talk about the moment that you and your team realized that there was a need for an organization like LeapFrog?
1: Well, I can't take credit for that. At the time, I was actually working at the Pacific Business Group on Health for a brief stint. And one of its staff members, Arnie Milstein, who was the chief medical officer, was involved in a conversation with some well-known employers across the country, small group who felt that they weren't getting good value from the healthcare system. They were feeling like they were getting just what they were asking for, though, which was Discounts in exchange for volume, meaning, you know, we'll bring you a bunch of lives if you give us a good deal. And they weren't thinking about the quality of care, the safety of care, whether, you know, their payment to healthcare providers was inspiring better quality or linked quality. And so they kind of looked at themselves in the mirror and said, we got to do something different here. And they wanted to leapfrog, you know, the way the current healthcare system was working. The goal was really to create standard measures of healthcare performance so that you see these billboards, a hospital claiming to be the best at heart surgery. But if there's not a standard way of measuring that, then everybody could claim to be the best based on their own version of measuring. So they felt that there was a need for standard measures public reporting on those measures, just like we have, you know, for dishwashers or cars, you know, we can go to consumer reports, but there was nothing like that for healthcare. And then ultimately, the goal was to create a connection between payment and performance. Really, the reputation that I think LeapFrog has today, which is, you know, sort of a hospital patient safety organization is a little bit far from what its founders were focused on, which was using the leverage of employers and other big healthcare purchasers to push the healthcare system to work differently using standard measures of performance, public reporting those measures, and ultimately tying payment to it. We used hospitals and medical mistakes as the rallying point. Here's an example of where We have, you know, egregious failures in the healthcare system, people dying from preventable mistakes in hospitals. And let's use that as a way to get employers and other purchasers focused on the need for fundamental changes to how the healthcare system's working. And then we can build from there. My current work at Catalyst for Payment Reform really builds on that, picking up where my work left off at LeapFrog.
0: Talk about the mission of Catalyst for Payment Reform, which is your continuing journey as employers really start to take up, I'm not sure what the right metaphor is. I was going to say take up arms, but that seems quite (laughs) pugilistic. So talk about what the mission is of the Catalyst for Payment Reform and how you're helping employers produce higher value healthcare.
1: I, You know, I think taking up arms is an interesting way to think about it. I have never seen employers and other healthcare purchasers more activated than I have today about needing to address the challenges they face in buying healthcare from the U.S. healthcare system. The mission of Catalyst for Payment Reform is to provide thought leadership to and coordination among employers and other healthcare purchasers to help them get better value for their healthcare dollar and also to shape a more functional healthcare marketplace. At the end of the day, we're looking for more payment reform, as you can tell by our name. We want to see changes in how we pay doctors and hospitals so that there are strong incentives to improve quality, efficiency and affordability, but we also want to expand the pool of employers and others who are buying healthcare that are effective at their jobs and really activated. So the call to arms, you know, analogy kind of works there. And then lastly, you know, to have a healthcare marketplace that is functional, you as an employer can't see how much you're paying a given hospital for procedures for your members of your population. How are you supposed to know if you're getting a good deal or not? There's all kinds of strange characteristics in the healthcare marketplace if we can even call it a marketplace that make it very hard for employers and others to be effective at buying.
0: I am just going to focus right in on that last one that you said about how can you buy healthcare? If it's not a functioning marketplace and you have no idea how much you're going to pay for something until after you get the bill. I was just speaking with Steve Watson a couple of weeks ago. He was episode 214. He's a CFO at a company of 500, so it's a considerable large, small business maybe. And he said that one of the things that his insurance carrier refuses to give him is the price point of hospitals. So he can get all kinds of other data, but they absolutely refuse to give him how much various procedures cost at various hospitals around him. What do you do?
1: One might understand for fully insured employers why they couldn't get access to all kinds of data because they're basically farming out the insurance company, all the responsibility and the work. But for a self insured employer, which it sounds like your interviewee Steam. was, mm-hmm. yes, yeah, Steve, mm-hmm. it really is kind of inconscionable that they can't get the information. And, and there's arguments that you hear as to why. Are the prices that health plans paying trade secrets? Are they important to keep quiet because if a low price provider finds out that someone else is getting paid more, are they are going to try to raise their prices? Is it because there's some kind of contract provision that the health plan and healthcare provider went to cahoots over to agree not to share the information with anybody because they both are benefiting in some way from paying whatever that amount is, and they don't want anybody else to know. There's all kinds of arguments as to why this happens. But at the end of the day, it's very difficult you know, to know if you're getting good value if you don't know what you're paying. So there's actually a really exciting effort underway by employers led by the Employers Forum of Indiana, working in partnership with RAND, to pool data that self-insured employers have and back into what the prices are that they're paying and compare them to the benchmark of Medicare. So, you know, how much does Medicare pay for hip replacement? What multiple of Medicare is X hospital being paid? It's enabling employers in certain markets where they're participating in the study in both in Indiana and now up to 20 states to understand which hospitals are higher priced and lower priced and start being able to do something around that.
0: Based on what you're saying, scale matters here. So it might not be necessarily, if, if I'm a CEO of a company, you know, there's all kinds of statistics out there or, or data points, which suggests our case studies is probably the best word that demonstrate how significantly healthcare costs can be reduced by employees slash patients going to institutions who offer high-value care as opposed to low-value care. I mean, it's not like chump change. It's tens of thousands. It's like 80% (laughs) less, which I'm sure you know these stats better than me. But it's not something necessarily that any, you know, unless you're a jumbo employer, that you might be able to have the leverage to do yourself. But it sounds like employers are starting to realize if they band together that their strength in numbers.
1: Yeah, it's a really important Point to get at right now where we are in the dynamics in the healthcare system because the balance of power varies from market to market and it has been changing over time. So what I mean by balance of power is who gets to call the shots in a given market. So if you take a given, you know, locale and let's say there's you know six competing hospitals and health systems, there's enough competition that an employer can search around, you know, for the best deal and. Whether it's working through their health plan to create different benefit and provider network designs that encourage then the members of their population, to seek care from high value providers, or in the rare case, you know, a direct contract that the employer puts into place with that better value, a hospital or health system, you know, there's options. But what about if you're in a market where there's one dominant system? I live in the San Francisco Bay Area and here the saying is that we pay 50% more for healthcare than people do in Los Angeles because we have one dominant health system that has driven up prices because they've got the market power to do it. As you look around the country, there are still some markets where the health insurance company has the market power and calls the shots. And then there are other markets and probably more so where there's a high concentration of hospitals and health systems and it's the opposite. And the employer, unfortunately, by nature, tends not to band together with the brethren or or sisters out there because every employer thinks that their population is unique. They need a, a special benefits package or design just for their people. And so they don't tend to take advantage of the theoretical leverage they could have if they work together more.
0: If they do work together... Is that something that an organization like Catalyst for Payment Reform can facilitate? Or is that something that the employer coalitions can facilitate? Like, how do you go about gathering together? You know, is it I just like walk around in my office building and try to get everybody? (laughs) (laughs) You know, like, what's the recommendation to try to organize enough clout to go to an insurance carrier and say I want this information I don't care if it's your trade secret.
1: In our view at CPR there's kind of two levels and and when I say CPR that's the acronym for Catalyst for Payment Reform and we always joke you know the healthcare system needs CPR so <laughs> you know we have seen efforts over time by employers to band together and purchase as a group and they often fail for the reasons I just described a minute ago. You know, it's hard to come to agreement on what it is that they all want. And so it doesn't go anywhere. There are certainly examples where this has succeeded greatly. I mean, think of Madison, Wisconsin and an organization there called the Alliance that purchases for a large number of, of small employers in the area. And they've done so you know, pretty successfully for a long time. But our approach at CPR has been to say, well, if we're not going to purchase together, let's at least align the ask. So We create for our members a shared agenda, and then we push that through some of the biggest suppliers, if you will, to employers in the marketplace. We meet regularly with very large health insurance companies and let them know what our members want from them that there's a business case for them to create it. And we actually measure their progress quantitatively, you know, numerators, denominators, and we track it twice a year to see if they're getting closer to meeting the needs of our members. So it's not group purchasing, but it's group pressure. And as an example, when we got started in the summer of 2010 with CPR, we did some informal research. We found at the time that between 1% and 3% of payments were tied to performance in some way. We've been tracking it ever since, and now we're at over 50%. Mm-hmm. And you know, another example would be price transparency. We were talking about that at the beginning. In this case, we were focused on the ability for consumers to see the price of care before they seek it. And when we started pushing The health plans to be supportive in that space. There was very little transparency, and now pretty much any you know sizable health plan in the country has annotated onto its you know provider directory information about what the price might be if someone were to seek care there. So there are ways you can make progress, you know, without buying as as a group. You know, I think at some point, however, employers are going to have to reconsider how customized they really need to be. Because as the consolidation among healthcare providers continues, and they amass more market power, and we know that price is going to be the biggest driver of healthcare cost growth in the next several years, I think they're going to have to look again at ways of bringing their leverage together in when it comes to actual buying.
0: So right now, because the ask is shared, and as you said, shared, shared pressure, And because you're publishing the results of the pressure and how well the various carriers are meeting the ask, are the employers then using that as a decision making criteria as to which plan, you know, TPA or or whatever that they choose to go with? Is that kind of what the pressure is or is it just simply the Hawthorne effect that sometimes if you publish information and look at it, behavior changes?
1: I think it's all of the above. I mean, the stuff that CPR focuses on is a section of many things that employers have to consider when they choose you know, a health plan partner. I think I'd be exaggerating to say that we've had a member switch who they work with solely because of how they were performing in the areas that we track. But it is definitely a sizable and visible part of the equation now. And in fact, we turn it into something very concrete. We create standard questions that employers can ask health plans about the things that the CPR members care about as part of their sourcing process and we have created model contract provisions that they can you know create as an addendum to an overall third party administrator agreement that outline the expectations of the employer of what you know the health plan will do on their behalf as it relates to the CPR agenda you know all of that you know again is is about the pressure and about making it easy for employers to be more sophisticated and activated in how they're buying healthcare.
0: And I can really see, I mean, one of the reasons why everybody says that healthcare is not a good example of a marketplace is because there's so much asymmetrical knowledge. One party's got all the information and the other party has very little. And this is probably another example of that because insurance carriers negotiate how many thousands of contracts on a yearly basis, whereas employers negotiate one. So by you doing this, it really is elevating the best practice and giving employers the knowledge that they're never going to get, you know, or it'll take them 25 years to amass a loan. What's a question or a, a contract point that you see everybody forgets? You know, like it's something that everybody's surprised to see that you put in your template.
1: Oh, that is a great question. You know, one that maybe is a little bit boring sounding, but probably is one that most people would forget to put in would be we, the employer, want the health plan to do a rigorous evaluation of their payment or delivery reform programs and share the results with us in a meaningful and comprehensive way. (laughs) Um, Because oftentimes, you know, there's sort of a check the box mentality, you know, the employer pushes for the health plan to do something, the health plan says, yes, I'm doing it. But then there isn't necessarily that moment to take stock on whether it worked or not. I think that is probably an area that I would highlight. You know, another might be, let's go back to the topic of transparency. One of the things that we have been putting into the contract is asking the health plan to no longer agree to what's called a gag clause, you know, where with a hospital or a health system they would agree to not post the price information or the quality information. Those are a mystery a little bit. We don't know how prevalent those clauses are, but they come up all the time and both sides point fingers at the other. You know, I've had health plans tell me it's the providers that insist on them. I've had, you know, executives of big health systems tell me it's the health plans who want them. We don't know really where the truth lies, and that's a mystery I'd love to unravel, but we do stipulate that we don't want those gag clauses because that information is critical, whether to an individual patient or to the employer.
0: Yes, yeah, certainly. And, and probably if everyone is a rational actor, they both actually have rational reasons to not publicize those prices. So it's probably a mixture. Yeah. <laughs> but speaking of payment reform, you had mentioned earlier that since CPR got started, the baseline for quality based payments and, and payment re- reform went from, you know, one to three percent doing it to up to 50 percent of payments being based on some sort of you know quality metric. Could you just give some examples of that? And if we were going to study it as per your advice, you know, like do a deep dive into that and, and how it's working, what would we be looking at and what does good look like?
1: I want to answer your last point first, you know, what does good look like? It's kind of like what I was saying a moment ago about the need for evaluation. People get really excited to say we have this much payment reform and we're doing it in these various ways. But at the end of the day, if they don't lead to You know, if these reforms don't lead to higher quality, greater efficiency, more affordable care, it's all just a big intellectual exercise. Our philosophy around payment reform, we've never picked a winner. We've never said this method of paying providers is the one, because we know that there's never going to be one solution. You know, going back to my description of how market dynamics vary, you have to take that into consideration when you think about the payment method and what the provider will even agree to as an alternative to the norm. But when we talk about payment reform, what do we mean by that? So you know, historically in this country, we've paid fee for service. The good thing about that is it encourages the delivery of care. You know, people are unlikely to be turned away when a provider can enhance their revenue by doing more. The bad part about it is that it's quality and efficiency agnostic. So really, the way that a provider can generate more revenue is to do, provide more care and more expensive care. And that doesn't necessarily mean that the care is appropriate or that it is leading to good outcomes or that it's efficient in terms of use of resources. So most payment reforms are trying to counteract the perverse incentives of fee-for-service. And in fact, the vast majority of payment reforms that exist today, when I say over 50% of payments are tied to quality somehow, they're still based on a fee-for-service chassis. So we're still paying a la carte. But on top of that, we might, for example in the pay for performance method have some quality metrics that the provider's being judged on. And if they meet those quality standards that were set, then they get a bonus of some kind. If we move a little bit more sophisticated, then we might be adding what's called shared savings to that model. As we get even more sophisticated, there might be a downside also, some shared risk. You know, Another type of payment we hear about is bundled payment. And this is the idea of a package price for an episode of care. Bundled payment is meant to create incentives for providers to collaborate with each other and facilitate better continuity of care and coordination. Long story short, there's a variety of methods out there, and they range from the fragmented to more and more packaged, all the way to capitation where you're paying a certain amount per month or per year for a given person. And as you move from the fragmented to the more holistic, You're getting more complex in terms of what you're expecting the provider to be able to handle. You might get more resistance from the provider because you're putting them more and more at financial risk for how well they do by those patients. But at the end of the day, we feel like all these methods have a place, but they all need to be improved and they all need to take quality into consideration in some way. Otherwise, at least we at CPR don't consider it to be payment reform.
0: I know a lot of times the government programs are on the vanguard and then commercial let's just say maybe there's some spillover into the commercial space and and MSSP, the Medicare Shared Savings Program, just got rid of all tracks that had only upside risk. So as we move towards this inexorable journey towards value-based care, obviously you can't be a payer and only pay an upside, not a downside. Like that just doesn't work from an economic model standpoint. Relative to bundled payments, I did just interview, and I know you know him, Francois DeBron. Yeah. Episode 220, because he was involved in the Leapfrog as well in the, the founding moment.
1: Yeah. I mean, for anyone who listened to that interview, they might enjoy the connection, which is that when I was a single staff person at Leapfrog and GE was one of the you know founding companies of the Leapfrog group, as well as Catalyst for Payment Reform, by the way. François was then working at GE, and he was basically lent to me um, to help me get to help, to help me get Leapfrog off the ground. So we we worked together for twenty years. Now we we joke about how we're we're siblings, you know, with a different mother, or whatever that saying goes.
0: You know, right when we first started talking, you said that you believe that you've never seen a time when employers have been more activated than right now. Do you think that we are at some sort of tipping point where healthcare providers and insurance carriers really are going to have to start taking notice at this juncture? Because in the past, there's been a lot of talk, but they haven't changed their ways much. Do you think that right now there is enough pressure from the ultimate purchasers of healthcare, i.e. employers and, and, and patients? To really, actually begin to, in a very meaningful way, change behavior.
1: I think where the pressure is coming from more than any place else is the fact that Americans can't afford their health care anymore. You know, it used to be, let's say, twenty years ago when I started at Leapfrog, or even eight years ago when I started at CPR. It used to be that employers were very hesitant to change their benefit design, the providers to which the members of their population had access they really wanted to avoid disruption at all costs and you know they they wanted to reduce any friction they'd have as you know health benefits managers or human resources executives and now we're at a place where there are a huge portion of Americans in high deductible plans that have deductibles that are larger than the average savings that Americans have. So they basically have a health insurance plan that they can't afford because they couldn't even pay the deductible to get to the care that they need. So when you get to a place like that, and we're seeing at least anecdotally examples over and over again of consumers now being willing to trade choice for affordability. So in other words, they're saying I don't need to have access to every doctor and hospital under the sun. If you can give me a different insurance option that's restrictive but I can afford, I'll take it in a heartbeat. And in fact, many members of CPR just recently, I shouldn't say many, but you know, a handful that had implemented narrow networks often tied to a particular ACO found that enrollment far exceeded their plan. You know, they they had no idea it was going to be so popular and it's because of the afford, you know, the relative affordability. So I think the pressure that Healthcare payers and providers are going to feel is going to come first and foremost from the American population, who is really at a critical juncture in terms of their ability to afford healthcare. And, you know, I wish I was that kind of person that could remember stats to rattle off, but I have seen just recently incredible statistics about. How long it's been since, you know, the average American has really had a wage increase and it's all getting absorbed into the healthcare costs. I think that that's where the pressure is going to come from. Now, of course, employers, I think of as sort of aggregate representatives of the American consumer. And so they're feeling emboldened by the fact that their population members are willing to trade off choice for affordability. And so I think there is going to be more and more pressure through new benefit designs, new network designs and direct contracting that, you know, will put all these players on notice.
0: And I think another thing that probably contributes to that is the availability of data and data analytics and artificial intelligence and all the ways that you can now create a narrow network that's not just based on cost. You know, like back in the old days, the narrow network would just consist of providers who were willing to get paid whatever low price point it was in exchange for, you know, volume, as you had talked about before. Nowadays, there's insurance or TPAs like, for example, Centivo, and, and there's certainly others who are creating narrow networks, but based on the highest quality providers. Because if you've got enough high quality providers, you don't need all the low value ones. So in effect, what you're doing is controlling costs, but at the same time, you're controlling them two ways. You know, number one, you're, you're keeping patients within the network, but at the same time, ensuring that there's not so much waste.
1: One of the things I keep thinking about is that even if employers were just to cut out the 10% most expensive providers and keep everybody else, you know, create a narrower network, not necessarily narrow. I mean, there'd be huge savings to be had. You know, I think as long as they get the information that they need, there's going to be a lot to act on. I mean, I will say unfortunately, based on research we did last summer with 12 different health insurance companies, the narrow networks that they create, they really do tend to be only focused on cost. And, you know, they make the argument that the quality is no worse than the broader network, which I think is a fair argument. I mean, you're creating a more affordable product for the same level of quality. But of course, you know, the ideal would be a narrow network that's made up of high-quality, low-cost providers. So, you know, that's where we really want to get to.
0: Yeah, and at the same time, I think just compromising on cost creates this weird, perverse incentive amongst those who, say, raise their hand and say they'll do it to order all kinds of unnecessary <laughs> other nickel and dimey kind of ways to make money. I don't want to be that cynical, but let's just say it doesn't create any incentive to be conservative relative to the care that's provided and really make sure that it is all evidence based.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there are, as I described before, there's a variety of payment methods and some of them do a better job than others at combining, you know, quality into it. So let's take a bundled payment program. If there's a fixed price that you're paying for a variety of services that all combine into a single episode, then that provider, the only way they get to keep any savings is by being really efficient. And as long as that payment approach is paired with quality metrics to make sure there's no stinting on care and that, you know, the outcomes were good, you know, I think that can potentially get us to where we need to go. And I think the data that have been coming out lately are showing that physician-led delivery reforms where there's a focus on the physician, whether it's physician-led ACOs or physician-driven bundled payment models or programs, tend to be more effective than focusing at the hospital level.
0: Yeah, I saw that research as well. And I think what we're both saying is that if the payment model is FFS, no matter how low you can try to negotiate the cost per unit to be, at the end of the day, you're still paying for volume.
1: Right. I was going to say that can be true of bundled payment as well. As you were talking about the cynical things that providers can think of doing, even if they agree to a a good price for the bundle and it creates some incentives for better coordination and collaboration, there's nothing stopping the provider from doing extra bundles. You know, we've seen some really cool innovations. We did a, a case study on Walmart and its spine surgery program. There, they created a separate bundle for the evaluation of the patient to make sure they were appropriate for the care. And then the another bundle payment for the actual care if it was needed, if the spine surgery went ahead. And they found about 50 percent of patients who came to a centers of excellence were found not to be likely to benefit from the surgery. And so, you know, you do have to make sure you're thinking through all the steps so that the care is appropriate, even if you've gotten a good price for it. What's your
0: advice for provider networks or insurance carriers? You know, like given all the stuff that is going on with employers and the work that you're doing at CPR, Catalyst for Payment Reform. If I'm a health system executive or an insurance carrier executive, and I'm listening to this podcast right now, what should I be thinking?
1: Well, I hope that what you're thinking is that at the end of the day, we're all in healthcare to serve patients. I think it's such a lucrative marketplace that I worry, and I I can't tell you how many conversations I've had, you know, where the, the patient doesn't even come up. It's about the business of healthcare. And it is obviously critical. There are so many times in all of our lives where the healthcare system is literally life-saving or helps us live happier, healthier lives. So, you know, my my dad's a doctor. I grew up, you know, looking at healthcare providers as heroes. But I think at the end of the day, we have to remember that it's about the patient, keeping That patient-centered focus, I think, is the right thing to do. And then what I will say from a more practical, perhaps business matter, is that the ability to demonstrate the value that you bring is going to be more and more critical because employers are going to be scrutinizing it. Whether it's the role of the third-party administrator and what are they doing for the employer that the employer couldn't do on its own, or it's the healthcare provider who wants to charge 10 times more than the hospital down the street. Well, we'd certainly like to see why your value is so much greater in your eyes. Is it because the quality is that much better? Is it because your admission rate is lower and there's fewer complications? And at the end of the day, actually, the total cost of care is lower? Or is it just because you're using your market power and you're able to hike that price up? So, I don't know, be prepared to demonstrate value because employers are going to be asking.
0: On the CPR website, there are a lot of really cool resources for employers. Can you just talk a little bit about what, if I go there, I might find and how I can become involved if I'm an employer that's listening?
1: Yeah, thanks for that leading question. I love it. (laughs) So our website, which is catalyze.org, is really geared toward employers and other purchasers. We're a 501c3 nonprofit mission-driven organization. So for employers all of our materials are free and you just need to register on the website. What you'll find there is a variety of things that can meet you where you are. Let's say you're new to health benefits and you're just figuring all this stuff out. We've got online education courses that are fun and pretty quick to help you understand what high value purchasing is and why you should care. We've got brief educational documents. We've also got a whole variety of recorded webinars that go over the fundamentals of different topics. Are plug-and-play tools that employers can download and use as part of their purchasing practices. So, for example, the RFI questions, the request for information questions I mentioned before that employers can post to health plans when they're going through the sourcing process or the model contract provisions, those are there for the taking. That's catalyze.org.
0: And one last question for you, Suzanne. Do you happen to be hiring right now?
1: (laughs) Ha ha! Yes, we are. We're looking to hire someone new in the role of uh, business development and strategic partnerships. And you might wonder why a nonprofit has a position like that, even though that we're we're nonprofit and we've been very luckily supported by foundations and our members. We really want to be that much more self-sustaining, and so we have a variety of products and services that we try to sell, not so much to employers, but more to others in the healthcare system who want to understand what employers are thinking and. Etc. And so we're looking for someone to help us grow in that space.
0: And where should someone go if they have an interest in learning more about the position?
1: Come right to our website, you know, again, catalyze.org, or just reach out to me and, and my contact information is on the website as well. Thanks, Stacey.
0: I thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Suzanne.
1: Oh, it was a lot of fun. Thanks.
0: Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at relentlesshealthvalue.com. If you visit the website, relentlesshealthvalue.com,